You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. My name is Paul Schleep. I attend the branch uh, over in Los Alamitos. I'm also on staff with EFCA West, which is the district of which this church is a part. By the way, those of you who are at Hume with uh, Darren McWaters, I think, was probably the speaker. Yes. Um, he is the new pastor over at the Fullerton Evangelical Free Church and just trying to figure out who we are as a family. So I've had lunch with him. He's a good guy, and it's great to have him on board. We are in the second Sunday of our series, both at Los Allen here and over in Garden Grove, on the questions that Jesus asked, which means that all of our material has to come from the Gospels, because that's where we have it recorded. There is actually one or two statements other places, but basically the Gospels. Um, and what we're going to do this morning is look at a question, a very short question, that comes out of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. They're all very short sayings. Part of this is because crucifixion, uh, by the way they did it, pretty much you couldn't catch your breath. Just the position you were in, actually many people drowned uh, because of the the liquid that would fill up with their lungs. They wouldn't actually die from the crucifixion per se, just the pain and the collapse and all that sort of thing. So that's why it's very, very short. He can't, he doesn't have time to preach a whole sermon from the cross because he's got to save that breath. And we're going to look at the fourth of the seven, and it's in Matthew 27. Uh, Matthew is the first of the Gospels in the order that we have them in our Bible. Um, if you're new to the Bible, the very first book is Genesis, go right. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far, come back left, and you will find it. Uh, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 this morning. Um, crucifixion was really so bad that Rome wouldn't even crucify their own citizens. It was one of the perks of being a Roman citizen. They could kill you a lot of other ways, but they couldn't crucify you. And our English word, excruciating comes out of the Latin ex, meaning out of or from, and crucis or crux, the cross. That when we think of excruciating pain, it's the pain out of the cross. That's how bad crucifixion was. And on the cross, you look at chapter 27, verse 45, it says, from the sixth hour, which would be about noon, until the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., darkness came over the land. So from the brightest time of the day, Till about mid-afternoon, it's dark, which is not the way it normally is. And then verse 46. About the ninth hour, so about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the question we're going to look at this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which raises the question, because this is Jesus on the cross, why had God forsaken Jesus? To answer that, I think we need to go back and look at what it was Jesus was trying to say. Uh, Matthew is very careful here to, to make sure that nobody thinks he's talking about something else than what he ends up doing. And we know that because of verse 47. It says, when some of those standing heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. And Matthew records that so that we know that's not what he was doing. You know, Eli, Eloi, it sounds similar. No, what he's doing is quoting the very first verse from Psalm 22, which is the Psalm of David. It was part of the hymnal of Israel, so they would sing it throughout the year as they would worship. And I think because it's one of those short phrases, 
But what Jesus is trying to do for those who are gathered at the cross, not all of His followers have already taken off, that rather than explaining all that He wants them to know, and certainly not being able to take the breath to go through the entire song of David, He quotes this very well-known opening phrase as it were, opening line to a song. You know how somebody will just say a phrase and the whole song comes to mind? I think that's what he's doing here because he, again, he doesn't have much breath to, to say, by the way, what I'm going through here, it's very much like what David went, I mean, he's not doing any of that. He just starts out, plus I think he actually is feeling the emotion that's behind that. So there's kind of two things going on there. So let's take a look at the suffering servant. That's verses 1 to 21 in this psalm. And it starts with David's suffering. My El, my El, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, literally my roaring. Oh, my El, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. If you ever hear me preach from the Old Testament, and some of you have, I will always pull out which of the Hebrew names for God are used by the author because I think it makes an importance. Otherwise, they would just generically say God, but they don't. And in this one, I think the reason he leads out with my El, my El, is because the name God, El, Elohim, is my strong God. The one who has the power to deliver. The one who has the power to do anything that's in keeping with his character. My kids learned very quickly that sometimes dad would make promises he couldn't keep. And it wasn't because he was a mean guy. He just ended up not having the money or the time or the energy, right? I am not L. I'm not all powerful. And so then I would apologize and we'd move on. But the reason I think that David starts with this is because for David, part of the problem of the situation he's in is that he knows clearly that God could deliver him. But he hadn't. I don't know if you've ever been in a tough season. If you've lived longer than about five years, you've been in a tough season, right? And we're not talking about the guy pulling into the handicapped parking space at CVS and then jumping out and running into the store. That is not suffering. I'm talking about suffering. Suffering so loud that, that David says it's roaring. I mean, in essence, what David is saying is, I'm not silent, but you are. And part of that pain in that situation he's in is because I know you well enough, God, to know you can do this. But you haven't. I've been there. Seasons of cancer, seasons of disappointment in relationships, seasons with my own kids as they grew up. They were pastor's kids, right? They had a little extra layer of stuff they had to deal with. We also... We used to always tell them, look, we want to give you something to talk to your psychologist about. I mean, who wants to sit and pay $150 an hour to say, my parents were great. I mean, wouldn't be worth it. So, in this, David uses L to say, God, you are the strong God. I know you're the strong God. But you don't seem to be lifting a finger and that only increases my pain on top of whatever else is going on. As Donald Williams points out, the pain is audible. Right? You can hear it. It just sort of blurts out this, God, where are you in all of this? He prays night and day. He's exhausted, both from the pain of the situation and his sense of ab abandonment on top of it. 
And by the way, it's only going to get worse as we go through the song here. And as I suggested, in essence, again, he's saying, I'm not silent, but you are. But then he makes a little switch in what we call verse 3, second stanza of this song, and, and starts reflecting on God's character. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. Now, the Holy One is the one who never makes a mistake, never does it wrong, never has to ask for a do-over, and everything he does is absolutely right. Right? Encouraging most days. But for David, I think, without having to read too much between the lines, this is also painful. You are not only the God who can because you've got the power, you are the holy God who only does right, and this does not seem right. You are the praise of Israel, and you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. In contrast to what? My own experience. What I'm going through now. So even what in another context would be a very comforting thought, Israel has been delivered. God has been there for Israel. He's not always been silent. He walked them through the Red Sea, all the rest of that stuff. Read your Old Testament, Older Testament. But it's not comforting to David because it only reinforces the fact that God is the one who does right, who can deliver me, and so far anyway, it hasn't happened. And then we look again at David's suffering. Verse 6, but I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let Yahweh deliver him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is more pain. What? The very people, the people of Israel, the people he worships with every Shabbat, those people are saying to him, if you trusted God enough, you wouldn't be going through this. Because look at God's faithfulness to Israel over the centuries. And if you really trust God, Yahweh, He'll take care of you. Yahweh here is the covenant name for God. It's the only personal name of God. It shouldn't have a the in front of it in our translations, the Lord, because it is Yahweh, right? You've got the Almighty God and the all kinds of other things, but this is Yahweh. This is the one who is to His people everything that He is. He's the promise-making, promise-keeping God. And so, hear the pain in that. What they're basically saying is, maybe you're not part of the covenant. Because God, who is Yahweh, is to His people everything that He is. I am. He's the promise-making, promise-keeping God. And if you really delighted in Him, you wouldn't be going through this. If we had testimony time, I'm willing to bet. Some of you have been through those seasons where you can't explain what's going on and the very people of God who should be there to encourage you are saying, well, you know, maybe it's just you need to trust more. You need to pray more. You need to be in church more often. They start giving you their list. It's like Job's comforters who did great until they opened their mouths. Right? I mean, read. I'm not making that up. That's in the Bible. When they sat with him, he was encouraged. 
when they began to explain his pain, they blew it. Because they were trying to piece it together. And David experiencing the same thing. In fact, it makes him feel like a worm and not a man. That's that's pretty low. Then he switches again to God's character in verse 9. Yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. So here he's reflecting to say, look, in essence, I didn't have a choice. I mean, from as little as I can remember, I was in an environment in which I trusted you, generally speaking, right? David, the man after God's own heart. He says, that's all I've known is to trust you. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my strong one. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. No one to help. Not the people of the covenant. Not God himself. No one. That's why the pain is audible. Then he goes back into his suffering in verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. You'll see the numbers up here because I believe David wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after this took place. And as a poet, he crafted a song. And so what you're going to see is he's going to name three kinds of animals and then he'll take them in reverse order as God deals with this stuff. He says, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. At least I find it fascinating because I'm a word guy. Roaring lions, fearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. That's just a piece of clay, broken pottery. I've been called a crackpot before, but that's not what this is referencing. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. If you've read the New Testament, that should sound pretty familiar. Written way ahead of time because this was David's experience. And I think we need to be careful because we see the parallels, not to discount that this isn't what was going on with David in a poetic form. This is, this is what his experience is. And David then switches in verse 19 and goes from his suffering in God's character and his suffering in God's character and goes to a prayer, which I think is important. That he takes that experience that he's in when it seems that God has forsaken him and it becomes a prayer. Look at verse 19. But you, O Yahweh, he owns it, right? You are to your people everything that you are. You, Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, the reference to the power of God, El, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the dogs. Verse 21, first part, rescue me from the mouth of lions. And then there's this pivot point, poetically, in verse 21, the second half of it. Save, and it's literally past tense, you have saved me from the horns of the wild oxen. You hear the pivot? It's, I want to be saved. I need to be saved. You did save me. It has now happened. I can now look back and say, at a moment in time, the silence stopped. Your presence was there. I was saved. I was delivered. There was salvation. And even in this season, 
of my life. It looked like a defeat. It turned out to be a victory for God. That's what he says. And eventually he was delivered. But with that victory comes a response from David that highlights what he learned in that suffering. And that's going to pick it up in verse 22 because I think now we get the fruit that comes from suffering. Not always, but ought to be there. The first is that he told the congregation. In other words, he told the people of Israel, the very people who should have been there for him and weren't, but who know Yahweh, who love Yahweh, who are following Yahweh, they're the first people to hear that in fact God has delivered. I'm so happy to be here the week that they're coming back from Hume and saying, God showed up. God's changing my life. I will never be perfect, but I'm going to keep my nose pointed in the right direction. That's what I heard in the first service. He says, I will declare your, that is Yahweh's name to my brothers and sisters, by the way. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For, that is because He, Yahweh, has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from the afflicted one, but he has listened to the afflicted one's cry for help. You hear what he's saying? Even in the darkest part of my experience, what I eventually learned is that God had not gone anywhere. That he was there for me. And that, yes, I think if you talk to David and took him aside, he'd say, it didn't happen quick enough for me, right? That that pain is very real. Let's not minimize the pain. Verse 25, from you, Yahweh, comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek Yahweh will praise him. May your hearts live forever. He says, I'm going to tell my brothers and sisters next time we're together in worship, that God was faithful even in a season when it seemed like He wasn't there. He was still there. And He eventually did deliver me. The second thing He does as a fruit of this suffering is He tells the world, look at verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. If you've read Revelation 5, 7, you get this. For dominion belongs to Yahweh and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Yahweh, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about Adonai, yet another name for God, the Lord above all lords. Verse 31, They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. Babies who haven't even been conceived yet will grow up and will praise God because of the deliverance of David out of this season. And then look at that last phrase. For he has done it. And in the Hebrew, that means it is finished. I don't have to connect all the dots for you. This is why I believe that Jesus on the cross with one of the few breaths that he had to say anything quotes the first line from Psalm 22 to say, this is what's happening. So I come to my question I always ask any passage as I'm marinating in it, studying it. It's so what? What what does God say to me about Himself and about my relationship with Him? What are some of the implications and the applications of this question? My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And my first question earlier on, which seemed like a long time ago now for some of you, was why had God forsaken Jesus? And I've suggested from the text of Psalm 22 that Jesus answered that question by pointing to the entire Song of David, in which, in fact, it looked like God had abandoned him, but in fact had not abandoned him. It could be that Jesus was only identifying with David's pain, but I think it was more than that. Those Jesus followers gathered at the foot of the cross could not understand how Jesus the Messiah, they've been convinced He was the one sent from God, could now be put to death. How does that fit? What do we do with that? And some of you who are familiar with both the Older Testament and the New Testament, even as I read from Psalm 22, you went, whoa, look at the parallels in there. In fact, the Gospel writers quote directly from Psalm 22 four times, and then there's a number of images about like bones being out of joint, the depth of his thirst, and then that last phrase, it is finished, that when they read it, it was like, Seriously? That's what this was about? Now, they had the resurrection probably by the time they started even putting that together. But in hindsight, which is usually a lot better than foresight, they got it because Jesus pointed them to this song of David to say, God does not abandon his people. And for years I, I thought and was taught that God was too holy to look at Jesus because he was judging all the sin there, so he had to turn his face away. In fact, one of my current favorite hymns Contemporary hymn says, and the father turned his face away. I don't sing very well, but, uh, but from reading Psalm 22, I'm not so convinced anymore. It appeared that God had turned his face from Jesus, but David, in essence, says, but that only is what it felt like and seemed like. God never went anywhere. Now, some of you are thinking, well, oh, wait, 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 there's a verse there. I know there's a verse somewhere where it says God's too pure to look on evil. And you're absolutely right. Give yourself five points on the Bible quiz. So doesn't that mean that God would have to turn his face away? But that is quoted in Habakkuk. I grew up Lutheran. We pronounce it Habakkuk. But I, I learned later it's Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Now, you remember Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel. Um, the other ten tribes had already been taken into captivity by Assyria. Habakkuk is still there in Judah, and he's complaining to God about the behavior of the congregation. Now, I work with pastors. My role on our team is to be pastor to pastors. And sometimes in their moments of frustration, they talk about the congregations. And I have to remind them, you know where sinners go, don't you? Your church. right? It's the only kind of people that ever show up at church. Right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Right? If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need to be here. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. All we like sleep have gone astray. I like to personalize scripture. Now, Habakkuk 1.13, it says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you're saying, see, there it is. It's right there in the text. Put your finger on it. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Habakkuk's problem here is he's complaining about the behavior of Israel and God says, okay, I'll send the Babylonians to take you into captivity. And Habakkuk almost literally says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the Hebrew. 
Uh, just, just made that up. He says, you can't do that. They're worse than we are. You can't use them to judge us. And God almost literally says, watch me. <laughs> and the problem here Habakkuk has is you can't use somebody worse than us to judge us. But Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds. It rhymes thoughts. And in Hebrew poetry, basically it starts with a line and then it either is a contrasting line or a line that builds on that first line and gives it some more understanding of what it was he was referring to. So when you read your Psalms, always look for those either contrasts or he's, he's explaining what he means by that. So look at what he says when your eyes are too pure to look on evil. He says, you cannot tolerate wrong. It's not that he can't see evil. My goodness, he can see me. Right? It's that he can't tolerate it. He's not going to let it go. He's not going to say, ollie, ollie, oxen free. He's going to say, that sin has got to be dealt with. And to the glory of God, he dealt with it in Jesus Christ on the cross. Who took everything I ever did and took it on himself and judged it, took it out of the way. And I think, because of Psalm 22, that God was looking in the eye at the time. This is what we decided before eternity. This is what we decided before we ever made the first man and woman, knowing where they were going to go. We decided that you would take their place and you would bear their sins. And this is it. And I'm not going anywhere. But, as this cartoon points out, there may be other interpretations. So if you think he turned his eyes away, go ahead. I said to the first service, if nothing else, I gave you something to talk about over lunch. Yes? Okay. So, the second so what for me about is that things are not always as they appear. For David, Jesus, and for us, it's easy, especially when our pain roars, to feel like God's not there. To assume that maybe I'm not part of the covenant family. In our case, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Because not only do I feel it, but sometimes the people around me enforce that. But I want to take you back to Psalm 22, verse 24, because I think these, for me, are the key statements from Psalm 22 that we need to grab onto in those seasons of pain. Because in verse 24, he says, God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not hidden his face from the afflicted one. And God has listened to the afflicted one's cry for help. Now there are, let's be honest, there you, you've got to take that on faith at times because the pain is audible. But it's there. God is there. And just by contrast, if you look at Isaiah 53, as he's prophesying about the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, he writes, he was despised and rejected, not by God, but by who? By us. By mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. Not God's face. People hide their faces. They can't, they don't know what to do with a servant who, who suffers like that. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. See, it's not God who has gone somewhere. It's us and our own hearts and the people around us. And the third so what for me is that one of the fruit of suffering is telling the congregation and the world the story. Whatever your story is, it's telling them the truth about God and His salvation and His deliverance. 
The congregation, those saved by grace through faith, are to tell repeatedly to each other to remind us of the goodness of the gospel. You see, he didn't have to send Jesus for us. You get that, right? The angels also rebelled. And God didn't become an angel in order to redeem them. Holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I'm going to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. God didn't have to do it. But He set His love on us. And that's why He sent Jesus. And we got to tell each other that. Because we go out into the world and we get bounced around and we lose sight of who God is and what He's done for us. And then eventually tell the world, I am so glad I'm here this morning to be to be reminded again, you've got three teams going out in the next seven days. But you've also got neighbors right, who don't know Jesus yet. Tell them the good news. Not just in-house. I was going to say, but out-house. That wouldn't work. But outside the church. And one thing we can all agree on this morning, whether you think God actually turned His face away or not, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And this is our lead into our time of communion. I was also really pleased in God's serendipity that I would be here on a Sunday when we celebrate communion. Because communion is a reminder of the price that Jesus paid. Not just for our benefit, but in our place. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God the Father made Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, so that in Him we, who are saved by grace through faith, might become the righteousness of God. That is, we'd have a right standing with Him. There's nothing left, the Old Testament says, that He can even chide us for. I mentioned in the first service, I come from a family of chiders from way back, right? Because we were good German stock. We didn't always face it head on. We just kind of hinted around at it. But it was clear, Mama wasn't happy. In the Scriptures, it said there's nothing even left that He can chide you for. It's all been covered. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Join me in prayer. Father, we literally cannot thank You enough for sending Your Son Jesus to die for us. It was motivated by Your love, and even that is hard to understand because we know ourselves. So Father, as we not only continue to think through this word from David in Psalm 22 and its even greater fulfillment in what Jesus did for us on the cross, not only on our behalf, but in our place. Father, we want to live that out. So would you help us this week, particularly, to keep our eyes on you, to keep our heart directed toward you, and to encourage one another as long as it's called today. In Christ's name, amen.